but I also had to tread carefully until I didn't. And I, I stopped treading carefully. I stopped giving into it. I stopped sitting on the fence. And I started just saying what my truth was and what the truth was from so many other people like me. You can't catalyze change while playing it safe and sitting on the fence. Now these days, sitting on the fence and playing it safe may look like watching everything you do and say to avoid creating conflict in the community you lead. Or it may look like your silence as a means to stay out of trouble from those you think can negatively impact your reputation and your livelihood. Playing it safe can also look like pleasing and appeasing others instead of holding them accountable. So if you want to catalyze change, it requires you to get off the fence and move from safety to vulnerability. And feeling vulnerable, well, it just plain sucks. (laughs) And it makes speaking up and out so dang hard. Feeling vulnerable means you've left the space of certainty and entered into the unknown. And our brains hate the unknown. But there comes a point where the unknown feels more true and tolerable than the comforts of certainty. Leading and living your truth requires taking a risk and sometimes doing something you've never done before. Saying your truth means you disrupt simply by showing up and speaking up. It demands you stand up to the critics and the bullies regardless of the consequences. It requires also living your values, not just speaking them. Caution, neutrality, keeping everyone happy are illusions that give a false sense of safety. Now sure, caution can come from wisdom, but it can also keep you from taking needed action. To lead and never upset anyone is impossible. And there is absolutely no such thing as neutrality in leadership. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. There is nothing safe about catalyzing the much-needed changes we need in our world today. And speaking your truth, (laughs) gosh, it sure feels loaded right now. But now speaking your truth does not equate to the entitlement to say whatever you feel, whenever and wherever. I'm talking about the deep knowing inside of you that is without the armor, without the spin, or without absorbing the projections onto you from the world. The pull to dim what you know to be true as a protective response is so, so real. Sitting on the fence is a protective response, and it also keeps you small and led by the burdens of fear. Now, I've been rumbling with this truth in my own writing and speaking. Thank you, producers. Noticing the years of protecting internally that push me to placate and keep things vague when there's a lot to lose or a chance to get hurt. But the more I unburden the hurts I've held for so long, the more my capacity to move through the vulnerability of leading from my truth and speaking my truth increases. Sure, leading from your truth is scary, especially in a world that cancels and criticizes in a heartbeat. And my guest today knows a lot about the challenges and costs of leading from your truth. With 25 years of experience, Shavise Turner is an internationally recognized eating disorders, weight discrimination, and social justice activist who founded the Binge Eating Disorder Association in 2008. Shavise is dedicated to moving beyond the current dominant weight-focused paradigm in public health and healthcare delivery to one that is weight-inclusive, promotes well-being free from weight stigma and discrimination and views our understanding of the social determinants of health as an important way forward for individuals who find themselves at that intersection of oppression and repeated denial of healthcare based on their body size, color, ethnicity, age, gender, socioeconomic status, and more. Now, this is a conversation about so much more than food and body issues. It is about coming home to your truth. It's about healing from your pain and the traumas of betrayal and constantly being misunderstood. Pay attention to the insights Shavish shares on the pace of change. This was so good for me to hear. And listen carefully for how Shavish shares the pain many feel because they're misunderstood and devalued 
because of the body they inhabit and the responsibility all leaders have to make sure this does not happen. And don't miss what she shares about not censoring yourself. It took my breath away. And now I am so thrilled to welcome Shavise Turner to the Unburdened Leader. Shavise, welcome. Thank you so much. And we were chatting before I started recording. I, I was just sharing how excited I am for this conversation because it is so multi-layered. And I really hope those of you listening hang in there because there's a lot of nuance that we're going to cover today and a lot of topics that impact leaders, no matter where you're leading from the living room to the boardroom to anywhere in between. So, so let me start off by talking a little bit about you, some of your professional history. You founded BETA, which is called Binge Eating Disorder Association, back in 2008, which when I say that after all the year we've been through, it feels like an eternity ago. But you founded this in a space that was already crowded with all these associations, <laughs> you know, other EDAs, <laughs> addressing the advocacy treatment and education around eating disorders and disordered eating. So I'd love for you to share why did you choose to start BETA? Sure, happy to. And and I'll note that I also decided during the year of one of the, the biggest financial crises <laughs> right. <laughs> to start a nonprofit. So it was an interesting year. I It was a year that I was really beginning to realize that there was no community for me, for the things that that I was dealing with. And I was in a job in a large corporate industry, and I, I was fortunate enough to have some means that I could take and roll into a nonprofit. And I decided to do that. It was really following my passion, what we all hope to be able to do someday. And yes, there were many other organizations in this space, but there were no organizations that were focused on people with this particular eating disorder, binge eating disorder, which represents the the greatest number of people with an eating disorder, and people who were who are in higher weight bodies. In our community, we do use the word fat, and so I may use that sometime. That is not a, a derogatory term in, in my mind. It is uh, just a statement of being. So higher weight or fa fat folks were not represented. And we're talking, you know, so many individuals and so many issues and nuances. And so I decided that it was time. It was time for me in terms of what I needed as a community. And it was time for the greater eating disorders community to really to begin to recognize us and validate us. I mean, that's a big shift, right? To go from a corporate, probably cushy, comfortable job to starting a nonprofit that took that's a that's a big leap. So I'm curious, what are some of the biggest challenges you had starting and then running a nonprofit? Because I know there's there's like one thing is the startup phase, right? And then there's the running of it. So I'd love for you to share both parts. What were some of the challenges in that starting? And then as things were going, what were some of the challenges in running it? Yeah, the I interestingly enough, I found the the startup phase actually to be the easiest because mm -hmm. to some extent there were check boxes you know it, it there were establish a board governance you know all of the things you sort of check 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 okay we we are in we're ordered at at this point and the other piece was networking and that was something you know i i have a background in in the political realm and in sales and marketing and communications and so that you know fortunately i'm an extrovert and that came easily for me i started just traveling around to all of the eating disorder conferences and treatment centers and, you know, mapped the lay of the land and where the power centers were, where the financial is or was, even though that is a, a whole other story. But, you know, just just 
discovering what was out there and what the politics were, what I was going to have to deal with, and being met with a lot of skepticism and a lot of, you know, sort of the question, like, why do we need another organization kind of thing? But and acknowledge that, yeah, nobody knows anything about this community that I was representing. So so that was easy for me. I'm not saying it would be easy for, for everybody, but I did find it the easiest part. The, the sort of second phase was that we, at, at that point, binge eating disorder was not represented in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the American... Uh, Psychiatric Association's Bible, essentially, of mental health diagnoses. And I just, you know, that was part of my consideration in founding the organization as well. I just couldn't believe that, you know, the most common eating disorder did not have a proper diagnosis. And so I I knew that the APA was considering the diagnosis and that there was a subcommittee that was working on it, you know, which housed many of the prominent eating disorder researchers. And so, you know, we tried to influence that and to let it be known that there was a community out there that was suffering and that, of course, there was utility to having that diagnosis. And just to jump in more than utility, as someone who has 18 years of clinical experience treating this, remembering that, you know, we can, for those who are fortunate to have health insurance, they can check a box of anorexia or bulimia. And then there was this old catch-all phrase, EDNOS, not otherwise specified, which wasn't always covered by insurance. It was less likely for people to get treatment. And so, and get their treatment covered. Mm-hmm. So they could get it if they could pay out of pocket, but it was so cumbersome. And and so it your work fundamentally shifted the reach of people suffering and shifted the whole treatment field. So I want to make sure to note that I remember there was such a huge shift in in many in many spaces and exhale for people to to be able to have access to more care. Yes, it w- it was it was critical to access to care. And I had worked on those issues in the oncology field. So, you know, with that experience, that's, I knew that was the first order of business that we had to attend to. And it really did shift. And I also knew that, you know, with that shift was going to, uh, there would be a lot of education required, not just to the general public, but to the treating um, community, because, it was very, there were few and far between clinicians that, that I met anyway, who really understood the disorder and really understood the nuances of it. And to this day, I'm, you know, most people aren't happy with most of what's in the DSM, but, you know, the thing about the BED diagnosis is it doesn't include restriction when in fact restriction is a really big part of the disorder. And so there's still a lot of, of work to do on this and, and so many other areas. Absolutely. Yeah. The cycle of you're, you're right. And I've, you've written a lot about that extensively and spoken about that extensively. And you're absolutely right. This cycle of restriction and just the whole, the spectrum of symptoms. And unfortunately, that book, which helps people get access to care, doesn't pick up the nuances of each individual. It's been frustrating for providers for a long time. Shifting a little bit, I'm curious, what did your experience of starting? And I, I really relate with you on starting. I like starting. It's that... It's the maintaining (laughs) that stretched me. (laughs) But what did the experience of starting and running your nonprofit teach you about leadership and leading, not just the organization of BETA, but also really what you've turned into a movement? Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because I, I, I really am a movement maker at heart. It's just who I am, which I I didn't know about myself or I wasn't able to define that about myself when I went down this road. I know it now. (laughs) I see it clearly and we can talk more about where I plan to take that. But I, I think that at, at the beginning, I didn't realize how many people were not going to like me because of Mm. what I did. Mm. 
And as I'm sure you can relate to, you know, as someone with a history of an eating disorder, and I'm sure you see this in your your clients, we all want to be loved. We're the good girls. We're people pleasers. Many of us who have a history of BED, and especially those of us who have internalized weight stigma and live in higher weight bodies and so forth, we're always trying to do the right things because we want to be loved. And so as I, as time went by and I saw that people in the field were, you know, they didn't agree with me. They were irritated by my advocacy. They, they wanted to correct me and silence me. And that wasn't everybody, of course, but that, that, these are the things that we encounter so often when we're in leadership positions that are about big, big change. You know, there there are concerted efforts to slow that change and and sometimes to stop it. And and that was very hurtful for me, but I also learned how to deal with it. And I I learned that it it really you know it wasn't about me. It was about the ideas and the the change that I was was trying to make. So I think that was the the most difficult thing for me on an, an emotional basis as, as a leader. But I think that the other piece that was difficult was really helping people understand why, and I'll be very frank here, why it's important that we support people who are in higher weight bodies with eating disorders in a way that may be separate from the remainder of the field and 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 that's very nuanced as well but it really spoke to the difficulty of raising money and building building a following that was willing to give of their time and their resources because there's so much shame around being fat and when you don't want to put that out there publicly, you're not going to be involved or give your money to an organization like that. Oh, okay. There's a couple of things I want to circle back to. You dropped some juicy nuggets <laughs> of wisdom here. For me, clinical eating disorder isn't a part of my story, but my goodness, I've grown up in America, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and I breathed in what the idea of beauty was. And I was a short, curvy redhead who grew up in Minnesota. So I was around these tall, long-legged, blonde-haired, <laughs> blue-eyed, beautiful people and felt very different always. And so that is something that took me a long time to embrace. And it's it's amazing when we don't feel like the other, it's hard to connect. And we all, I think so many of us have our other story, not everybody, but many of us when I do that work and you, you touch on this point of the surprise. And this is a theme I hear a lot with the leaders I work with, the surprise of how many people wouldn't like you and how that tapped into your stuff. I just felt that when you were saying like, yes, it's like, we want to belong. We yeah. want to have that love. It's like, it's, it's literally our oxygen, that connection to people. So to have that attacked, not overtly or maliciously, maybe not always, sometimes, sometimes, but <laughs> sometimes you're right. Yeah. But it, there's something about our relationship with our body and our idea of beauty and health that has permeated all aspects of how we do life and enoughness. Mm hmm. And it's insidious. And again, there's again, there's so much nuance in this conversation because there are people that are carrying more weight that don't have an eating disorder. And that's one of but often just wear the stigma of how people are misunderstanding how they who they are because right. of how they show up in the world. And you actually are coming into the treatment capacity for those that are struggling with a relationship with food and body on a, a more severe level. And that impact. There's money in that. There is so much money. I don't, Shivisa. I don't know if I told you the story ever, but I was brand spanking new as a therapist. I was still an associate at the time, and I went to my first 
IDEP conference, which is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. It was here in San Diego where I live. And I went up to someone who works at a program that's based here in San Diego that I knew that I had interviewed for the Certified Eating Disorder Specialist certification I was working on. And this room was full of all these different treatment centers around the whole country, Shavisa. And I was like, oh my gosh, all these different places are helping people heal. And this is an issue I was so passionate about. So I thought, if I want to help women, where do I need to work? And I thought trauma and eating disorders is <laughs> where I found out. So that's what I focused yeah. my clinical <laughs> career on. And, and at the heart of that ended up being shame and perfectionism mm-hmm. too. And so I spoke to this person. I shared my starry-eyed on wonder. And she looks at me and she's like, more than half these programs used to be drug and alcohol treatment mm-hmm. centers. And she was like deadpan. And I'm like, okay, well, why did they change? And she's like, the money. It was better money to treat eating disorders. <laughs> and I was like, wah, wah, wah. You know, I just, <laughs> and I, that's, but that conversation's embedded in my brain. And that was in 2007, 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2007, I think is when it was. And I've been watching the field since. And so knowing the work that you've done and shifting the powers that be and seeing the, you know, a field that's supposed to help people sometimes, not often, not sometimes, the the tension of a business of helping people and forgetting the souls that they're treating. And you bringing in this whole new dynamic of treatment rocked the status quo of of power of how money was made. And I, I think there's a lot, I think that's something worth noting in terms of this work that you've been doing. Yeah. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, it was, it really was pure luck. <laughs> and I think that, you know, the, being the extrovert and just talking to lots of people, I was able to stumble into a group of people who were really coming to treatment of higher weight bodies from an eating disorders space. And I, and I don't believe that higher weight bodies need to be treated if, if they don't have an eating disorder. I'm, I, I come to this in a, from a very different perspective than some members of your audience may think about. But I, I, see that there is a a natural diversity of sizes and that we all live in an environment that is is difficult in terms of for some people navigating food and for some people navigating how they feel about their bodies. And there's such a large spectrum Mm -hmm. between disordered eating and eating disorder. And and I just I did not see my own recovery and I as going well up until I really found this place where I could come to accept where my body was and that it was fat and that it was always going to be fat. And that's when I was able to heal. And, you know, when when you live in a fat body, you are exposed to microaggressions which are a form of trauma every day, whether you're watching TV, whether you're sitting at the table with family, whether you go to your doctor, you, you know, fat is a very political thing. And, and when I say political, I mean that it is people have opinions about it. They want to control it and, it says something about us according to how we feel about fatness. And so it's a really difficult thing to navigate. And within the eating disorders field, it's, you know, I always, I thought that entering the eating disorders field that I would be surrounded by people who understood that these were, you know, clinicians and researchers who would be like, of course, we understand what you're going through, Shavis. Like, this makes total sense. We understand eating disorders. And I found just the opposite, that because I was in a fat body, the eating disorders community was afraid of me. They thought I was disgusting. Mm. They all, all of the things that we think about in the general public was just exacerbated 
in the field of eating disorders. And that is what I was always trying to change. And, you know, the the pushback from different parts of the community in whether or not to accept people in fat bodies, how to treat them, you know, that that we were getting some sort of favoritism by demanding a voice and demanding access to care and saying exactly what we had been through, <laughs> you know, and that we were, I, I think the worst to me was, you know, on, on social media, when I would see someone who was struggling with anorexia and, and they would claim that, that we fat folks were hurting them by, by stating that, you know, what our concerns were. That was really difficult. So as a leader, you know, navigating all of this, because I had the lived experience and I could speak to it, but I also had to tread carefully until I didn't. And I I stopped treading carefully. I stopped giving into it. I stopped sitting on the fence. And I started just saying what my truth was and what the truth was from so many other people like me. I'm just pausing here because there's such power when we stop, we stop editing and speak truth, but man, is it, it's dangerous. It is. And and I just want to pause here and, and ask how you care for yourself personally. You talked about, you know, you said it's not about me. It's, it's about the movement and the issue. I'm like, and I also know with the leaders I work with, you are sometimes the representation of you're holding that. So how are you caring for yourself personally, since this work and movement are so inspired by your own story, which you've, you've touched on a little bit in our conversation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I'm getting teary. <laughs> Um, it happens on a, my, it happens on the unburdened leader. Yeah. <laughs> I guess teary off. <laughs> yeah, you know, recently I did separate from the National Eating Disorders Association, which I Beta and Nita merged about two years ago, and that was extremely difficult for me. And I I still am dealing with the the trauma. Of it because this this was my life's work right this was what I felt I was meant to do and so care self care in you know when when something happens like this and even prior to this because I'm I'm working in a highly emotional and important area I feel to me it's 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 very important and and there are a lot, there's a lot of emotions around it i i care i care a lot about the people in the field and i care about the issues they're they're really important i and i think that the more people understand what the issues are the the more important they become to an individual so mm, yeah you know it, people hear eating disorders and they're like, oh, anorexia, and that's terrible, but it doesn't happen. You know, it's not that common. And they don't realize that it's not just anorexia and it is all around us. It is everywhere. It is in your family. It is in your group of friends. It is men. It is women. It is, you know, any gender, any weight, any, you know, orientation, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you make, it's, it's there. These eating disordered and disordered eating are there. So it's, it's important to me. And, and self-care really is, you know, I don't, I don't think of taking a bubble bath or getting a pedicure as, I mean, it's self-care, but to me, it's, it's, you know, it it feels great for a little while, and I definitely don't want people to think that I'm saying don't do that because I think it is absolutely necessary. But self care for me is is really about still going to therapy. It's mm-hmm. about you know finding and participating in my community. It's about doing things that you know morally and ethically 
feel right to me with regard to, you know, my my community and 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 how I conduct myself. It's it's saying how I feel, you know, and and not censoring myself. Though those things are all self-care and it's turning to the people um who are around me. It's turning to my husband. It's turning to my friends. That is really how I get support and self-care. Saying how I feel is self-care. Mm-hmm. Dang. <laughs> Remarkable, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we edit, we try and edit our outsides and our insides, right? Mm-hmm. And okay, I've a couple of questions I want to stem from this, but I want to just step back. You mentioned the merger with Beta and Nita back, and it happened back in 2018. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to share with the audience, just from a high level, you know, strategically, what were the factors that led to the decision? Because I know sometimes, you know, it's better to have these separate organizations that collaborate, and sometimes mergers are helpful. And I'd love for you to share uh, with my audience why you decide, like, what were the strategic influences behind that decision? Yeah. You know, Beta was always a, for me, it was, you know, it was a third child and it was a labor of love. But part of taking my care of myself in that was after 10 years, really wanting to be, not just wanting, but deserving to be paid a salary and wanting to have help, you know, being able to hire folks to help do more and expand the mission and keep the movement going. And really, you know, because my background was in, you know, policy and and nonprofit and so forth, I really wanted to do the policy work that I had, you know, we just never had time or funding to do. And so, you know, I, along with the board, we started discussing what are the next steps strategically where we've been around 10 years, we've made a really big impact. It was, you know, it has been a labor of love, but there isn't a lot of funding out there for eating disorders for some of the reasons I mentioned earlier. And, And also because there are quite a few organizations doing work who have been around longer and have, you know, a funding base. And so, I was having discussions about it with Nita CEO and I always say we dated for a while <laughs> but at you know at at some point we decided it was was time to go forward and I was informing my board and she was informing her board and we felt together that it was time to bring these communities together, the traditional NIDA community, which was primarily individuals with anorexia and their families, and then people who were in higher weight bodies who might have binge eating disorder, of course, but also atypical anorexia, bulimia, all of the disorders that usually have a binge component to them. And, you know, we felt that with the resources of Nita and my leadership within the the BED and, and higher weight community, that we could really come together and start getting to understand one another and and start at at some point speaking as one. And, and obviously there are nuances and many differences as well, but we could handle that by, you know, having a general message that was about the importance of, of treating all eating disorders and prevention and so forth. So that was, that was the intent. And for me, the piece of that that was also very important was the, you know, the recognition of, of not just fat bodies as marginalized, but anyone, you know, despite color, age, gender, and so forth. Because we knew that, you know, when you have one or more marginalizations, meaning you are not a white, thin person, or, or female for that matter, identifying as female, that you are more likely not to get care and get access to care. And so that was really, really important to us. And so, yeah, that's those are the reasons we came together. 
Yeah. And you, you've touched on this a little bit a few years ago, late to the party, but I'm here just was introduced to the term intersectionality. And my mind just was like exploded and just, it all kind of clicked and made sense of these issues. Yes. If I care about women, I have to care about race. And then I've always cared about how people view and heal and talk about the relationship with food in their body. And so the, the, the issue around weight and the weight stigma, that's part of there. And then, then, or, you know, sexual orientation and physical ability. I worked for the Senator who was the author of the ADA and so learned so much there and just saw all of a sudden these concentric circles and went, it's not just this little lane of like, I'm for women. No, if I am for these issues, I'm for all of these issues. And I'm still waking up to this and learning and integrating and rumbling with so much. But I, I've seen that in your work where for you, this issue around decreasing the stigma around people who are in larger bodies is not just this narrow issue. It's connected to, it's an intersection of all these issues. And you've really brought that into your voice and into your platform and into your leadership. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, I think I was born with the social justice gene, <laughs> my, you know, and really in my, my mother, you know, definitely was a big part of that. And I, I love her for that and who she is. You know, I grew up with, you know, lots of LGBTQ folks around and people of all different colors. And, and I, and I heard their issues. I, I just, I, I, it was it was something that just it went in and it stayed there for me. And so, you know, I remember years and years. Well, at the beginning of, of Beta, I was, you know, noticing how white the field was, just that the majority of the people in power in the field making the decisions, having the the, the loudest voices were all white and I knew I was part of the reason I was there because it was because I was white and that bothered me. It bothered me that, that, that all of the airtime was taken up by a white perspective and it, it made it seem like only white thin girls get eating disorders. And so while we don't want to take any of the attention away from them, we want to add to it so that we see the field as it really is and who gets these disorders. And so that's what's always been the driver for me. Yes, it's political. And that that just has to do with my own political orientation. But everything is political. <laughs> you know, the definition of, of politics is who gets what. And so what I wanted our field to get was everybody being included you know, and our piece of the pie when it came to research dollars and, you know, treatment dollars and, you know, everything. That's That was what was at the foundation of all of my work. And, and it was very important to me that people were seen and included at the table. And unfortunately for our field, that was too much, too far for, for some people in the field. So, and, and you mentioned that, you know, that you are no longer with Nita you, and last falls when you left, what are you able to share about your departure? I can't share a lot. So I'll, I'll speak in terms of the greater community and, and that, is, you know, because what happened at NIDA really is what's happening in the greater community and what is going on even on a, a national level in terms of our, our politics. That that wonderful coming together that I, I so badly wanted to see, I don't think that everybody understood what that coming together actually meant. Hmm. And at the end of the day, in in the field, you know, as as we 
already talked about, there was, you know, there there was a power center in terms of, of who had what. And because anorexia was the first focus in terms of eating disorders, and because it's so deadly, it has received the bulk of the attention in terms of, of you know, what the general public knows about it. And, and it deserves every bit of that. But when we started really bringing the the culture of beta and um, the culture of the higher weight community into the you know or or bringing it together with the traditional eating disorders community there was a lot uh, there were a lot of people who were very very uncomfortable with that and you know, it, it does take some time to adjust. It does take some time to really understand others and to get up close and personal with them in order to understand. And I think that at the end of the day, what we have not done in this community is gotten really up close and personal with one another. We don't know one another's stories. And you know, in the in the case of of Nita, I think it, at the end of the day, there were a lot of really great people trying to do really good work, but not quite understanding one another. And you know, I I definitely have a platform, and I have followers, and I have people who really support me, and I really try to support them as much as possible. And I think they all really know my heart and just how important all aspects of what need to be done in the eating disorders community are to me. And and they showed up big time when when I left NIDA. And so I I know that that's the direction we're going. I know that this this field may not be ready to come together right now, may not be ready to actually listen to one another and may not be willing to be uncomfortable and step out of their own place that they hold in the community and really see and hear and understand others. And so I think that unfortunately, the merger was probably too early in the life cycle of both the organizations and the field. And so it didn't work and, or it didn't, it didn't, you know, BETA is officially a, a part of, of NIDA. I'm on the founders council of, of the organization, but having, having me there was too soon, too fast. It just, it wasn't going to work. And so we go on. Yeah, thinking about what you said about the culture of the traditional kind of advocacy and education treatment work and the culture of BETA, and and thinking too that culture is such a powerful thing in organizations and families and communities, whatever, you know, wherever. And what are some of the, I guess I'm trying, because I'm filling in the blanks myself, just because I have been around both of these organizations for several years. So, but can you articulate what are some of the the culture challenges or if if you were to say in hindsight what were some of the culture challenges you touched on you know homeostasis status quo wasn't ready for the change and the pace that you were ready you're like let's do this i hear i hear that but what were some of the culture i don't know if i want to say barriers but contrasts that really were hard to breach or hard to integrate is probably a better word yeah, you know, I think this the the way that advocates and activists talk about this idea about intersectionality was a big piece because you know, if you're a student of social justice and you know, I've I've in the last several years I've really dove into a lot of, of reading and working with some prominent teachers out there and have have been very humbled by how much I don't know. And yeah. <laughs> and but trying to help others understand that and use, you know, uh, I I think that I was 
a bit further down the road. And so when I talked about something, for instance, like white supremacy, you know, I wasn't talking about a person showing up with a, a, a clan outfit on. I was talking about a system and a right. system in which white folks were centered. And what we know is that, you know, black and brown folks and indigenous folks are getting eating disorders too. And they're not fitting into that white culture and white system. Some of them are passing, some of them are navigating better than others, but it's just there. And you, it's so, we can't deny it because it's, it is our culture. We live in a white culture. And so how do we help folks, you know, navigate this culture? And it, it does mean that we as white people need to, to be the ones who are helping. And I take that very seriously. And so I think some of the language that was used, like white supremacy, questioning how capitalism plays a role in our in our field in terms of all of those treatment centers that you've talked about. I mean, we're so thankful for, for treatment, and yet totally. folks with BED still can't get treatment at that higher level most often because insurers will not pay for it. And that's because, you know, they don't see it as serious. They, we all know that insurers will, you know, try to get out of, of treatment. And so, you know, it is a capitalist system we can't deny that money is being censored based on what eating disorder you have. And so I, naming those things were really important to me because they are things that we have to contend with. And I was doing policy work too. You know, I was thinking about how to get people access to care and how do we navigate these systems so that a black trans fat woman can, can with BED can get you know, help as, as easily as I can. And that, I mean, these are huge, huge barriers, but if we don't talk about them, we're never going to navigate them. And that's, yeah. that was my position. And it was very much taken as if I was saying, you know, every clinician needs to sit in, in a room with their client and name their their privileges and, and you know it just was you know yeah. it it was it really was not understood and and that yeah. falls to me partly as a leader definitely it falls to me because I need to find out how to communicate in ways that actually reach people and that's why I say too fast too soon you know I I appreciate that Shavis and I I appreciate your ownership here, but I'm just thinking systemically the capacity, this is what I've been watching it to, for, for people to really look and the fear of being seen as, you know, racist or anything ist or ism or, you know, that, and so the defensiveness is, is, is emotional bandwidth response. It's often a trauma response and, Pace is tricky on that stuff because when do you rip the Band-Aid off? And and I'm wondering what history will show for you because did you begin the process? And and while there's a lot of hearts that are deeply hurt in the process, yours you on you're on the front lines of this. I'm just wondering is you know it's this tension of do we rip the Band-Aid off or is it just this delicate pacing i i'm with you i i'm finding myself frustrated with the patience of some of these conversations yeah. i'm having on a much more local level that's where i'm feeling called to have these conversations and I, i'm like it so yeah. but this this is long game work regardless so I, I appreciate you saying that noting the pace and i think that's a lesson for all of us to think about yet it's hard when there's that enthusiasm and that vision and the heart was in the right place for you and the president of nita i could see the two of you come together and like let's do this this is what we're here for and then the deeper stuff of the darkness of what we're wrestling with as a country and as a world right now it just lashed up and and so i'm i'm just curious as we have more time you know, how this is going to unfurl and what you've started with that. I, I do want you to talk a little bit more about weight stigma in particular, because I think 
this is a phrase, you know, hashtag weight stigma, you know, it's, it's, it's thrown around a lot, but I, I actually think this is a really important issue for leaders and business owners and entrepreneurs to understand granularly how maybe they're colluding with it or how they can actually help not collude with it and help create spaces that are both brave and safe for people that are in all sizes of bodies. So wondering if you could unpack weight stigma a little bit for our audience. Sure. Weight, weight stigma is, you know, I think people use different uh, words to describe it. it. It is fat phobia. It's fear of fat. But it is weight stigma is a bit more of the systemic issue. It's how it plays out in our our systems. We, you know, when we individualize it, we say it's weight bias. We're biased against fat bodies. And this is, you know, if if we think about all of all of the isms, this is a big one because you know about seventy five percent of our um, population in the U.S. live in a, you know, I don't use the words overweight and obese. I don't like them, but they're in those categories, and and so weight stigma essentially as it's as it's performed becomes weight discrimination hmm. and you know when we have that fear of being fat and and people who are already living in fat bodies are probably the most fearful of it they're always trying to lose weight you've internalized that weight stigma and have taken it on you believe those things about yourself and about other higher weight folks and so sometimes fat people are the biggest perpetrators of, of weight stigma because they're trying to fit in. It's just like in other areas of discrimination. And it, it probably, while it is in no way the last remaining, you know, place where people are, are stigmatized, it is, it's probably the least recognized because we, we all just kind of go about our day and think it's completely normal to, you know, as as people identifying as women sitting in a group and talking about everything you've eaten for the last week and how you're being bad now because you're having a sandwich with french fries instead of a salad and you're going to work off those calories tomorrow. And then when you go to the doctor, the doctor tells you that you really need to lose 10 pounds or 100 pounds and they don't diagnose you with things that may be going on because they're so focused on your weight and you can't fit into the chair at the doctor's office. And then you go home and you turn on the TV and you're barraged by weight loss programs and everyone's telling you at the dinner table that, you know, you really shouldn't eat that. And you go out and you decide I'm going to lose some weight and you get on, you go out and take a walk around the neighborhood and somebody rolls down their window and says, hey, fat pig. And you go to school and you're experiencing a an obesity program, you're weighed, you're made fun of in line to get weighed because everybody knows you're fatter than, than most of the other kids. And it just goes on and on and on. And so every day you are made, you are facing the stigma of living in your body. And for most of us, especially women, but really it's everyone now, we've been taught that we should be smaller. We should always be smaller, no matter what size we are, unless we are, you know, grossly underweight. We should be striving to look a certain way. We should be exercising constantly. We should be eating only certain foods. You know, I, I don't know how we have time for anything else, frankly. You know, we're navigating this and, you know, and for me as a white woman who has pretty much every privilege in the world except my body size, I don't know how people do it who have more oppressions because this is just, it's something that we are reminded of at every turn. And even people who are supposed to be helping those of us with eating disorders are stigmatizing us. They're putting us on diets that, you know, they think the disorder is that you're fat, you know, so it, it goes on and on. And it really, it's a one long continual trauma. So thank you for unpacking that and giving 
gosh, I just listening to you rattle off different experiences that I know so many people could at least relate to one, if not all of those. <clears throat> I'm curious to hear from you. What do you think leaders and business owners can do to keep their businesses and communities from colluding with the pervasiveness of weight stigma? Because I'm even thinking we've got some of these, like in the tech industry right now, all the rage is, you know, intermittent fasting Mm -hmm. and they're talking about this stuff. And I mean, I'm all for people getting curious about their health. And I know there's a lot of different paths to being well, Mm -hmm. but it's just, it's masking some, some tough stuff there. I mean, you and I know this and I'm not going to diagnose anybody because they're not my clients not ethical, but I do think that this is, I'd really love for leaders listening to this podcast, have some tangible things to rumble with on how they can maybe, maybe be aware of how maybe they're unintentionally colluding with weight stigma and what they can do to counter it. I think that one of the message messages for leaders in all of those industries is that you're, you're, the folks who are working with you are their mental health is just as important as their physical. And I see it all as one, but yes, <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, what we know is the harm that some of these practices are doing to people's mental health it really does not warrant the the approaches that are being taken. So for instance, if you have a um, workplace wellness um, program, you really need to look at, you know, are you bringing weight loss programs into your organization? If you are, you may want to rethink that. The long-term efficacy of weight loss is that about five to seven percent of people will lose the weight and keep it off. The remainder will gain it back plus some. So what you're doing is is really setting up a a cycle, a cycle of weight lose, weight lose, or gain lose. And what that does psychologically and physically to people over the long term is devastating. I can tell you at the age of 35, I had congestive heart failure after my first son was born. And that was from years of weight cycling. My my heart was weakened. Wow. And there, you know, there, there, it was, that doesn't happen to a 35 year old unless there's a hereditary issue. So we really need we know that social determinants of health are just as important as other health markers you know i mean looking at at you know people's blood and 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 helping them you know take their medications be okay with medications i hear so often people are like well i just don't want to be on medications but that's why we have them i understand that but in the long term your weight loss is not going to take care of that if you gain it back plus some so there there are all these and, and we could do a whole podcast just on on reasons not to bring weight loss in. But at the end of the day, you really need to be looking at the discrimination that happens to people in higher weight bodies in organizations when you're doing Biggest Losers campaigns, when you are asking people you know, basically putting pressure on them not to eat donuts in the in the lunchroom when donuts are brought in, you know, and comments are made when, you know, having a healthy workplace environment is great. Of course we want that, but we need to have a variety of things so that people aren't feeling like they're being singled out because there's not a reason to single them out. There's not, there are so many environmental determinant, health determinants that are going on that you're insisting that everybody eat a plant-based diet is not going to help everybody. So it is complicated, but at the core of it is not discriminating against fat people, not making them, putting them in a separate group and, and giving or approaching them in a way that you wouldn't approach everybody else. It is really important that the the messages that come across are inclusive and not exclusive. 
and that the people are made to feel like humans, that it's not, you really, you know, at the end of the day, just like we bring in, you know, many organizations will bring in a consultant to help them do consulting around race and, and other aspects of, of social justice and, and discrimination and equity inclusion. Weight stigma needs to be a part of that. We need to always think of that as one of the pieces. And there, there are people out there doing that and it needs to be going forward a part of what we do. Thank you for that. Yeah, and I think it's a lot to rumble with, especially we're recording this in the month of December, which I purposely wanted to have you on at the beginning of the year because it the, the dial is always turned up tis the season and the desire to be well is a wonderful one but the path to it is so nuanced and we don't want to take good intentions and unintentionally have people be unhealthy because of what we're trying to do there's a lot of these different things that we've really demonized food and weight and created these polarizations that you know it's 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 not helping with our mental well and and really behind a lot of how we feed is is our mental well-being yeah. our relational well-being and and we've, what's gone on we've been created we've created an environment of healthism which mm. is you know sometimes i'm like oh one more ism but but it really is it's like you know if you're not completely healthy you're meant to feel less than and that's not helpful that's not actually going to help create health and and we do know that at any size body, you can use health behaviors. You know, you you can, you know, my my I definitely have health issues, but I live a very healthy life. You know, everybody is individual and we have to assess what is right for each person, not, you know, lump it into a group and say everyone has to do this. Absolutely. And that that message can transcend for so much what we're dealing with and addressing right now in our country. Just as we wrap up, you recently wrote, you're no longer going to dedicate your time to the eating disorder community. I saw you make a post about that and that caught my eye. And I'd love for you to share what was behind this decision and what's next for you. Yeah, thank you. It's, you know, still very much in the works. And I'm, I'm not sure of the exact direction, but as I really stopped and took inventory and thought about, you know, all of the people that have been along for the ride with me and where my heart really belongs, it really is in the higher weight community. And that's whether someone has an eating disorder or not. And one of the things that I, along with my colleague, Jocelyn Smith, had had started at NIDA, we were running the the policy shop there. We were in conversation with some actually very big corporate partners who were very interested in changing or adding to existing legislation around discrimination for weight. And so what I'm looking at right now is you know, I don't know if that's going to be an organization or how that's going to play out exactly, but I am going to refocus my time on making sure that people cannot be discriminated according to their body size in the law. And I see this as the, you know, this is this is marriage equality for for fat folks. This is, you know, being recognized that we're human and that we have rights and that we we deserve to not be discriminated against. We we deserve not to be traumatized every day. And so that's what I'm going to focus on and I, you know, as a movement maker, I I'm very fortunate because there is already there are already so many amazing people out there who have been for the last 70 years working on this issue and have brought it to where it is now and I hope that I can take my policy expertise and and take it to the next level and I think it's time 
I, this is, this is the one thing that I feel like, yeah, it is time because the conversation is already happening. And when you have large corporations who are, are willing to be there with you in this fight, I know that they see it too. And, and that is encouraging. So it's, it is a big social justice endeavor and I have no idea where it's going to take me or all of those who are, who are a part of this, but it should be interesting. And I think I'm going to probably have to get really used to not being liked (laughs) because this, this is no longer just within the eating disorders community. It's a whole other level. So it should be interesting. And it's a tough time right now where it's, you know, bullying and Mm -hmm. othering and dehumanizing has been so normalized. But as you so wisely said, speaking your truth is your self care. Mm -hmm. So I am going to remind myself that often. And when I know you're speaking your truth, I know that while those may be throwing daggers, your heart is growing (laughs) bigger because you're being true to you. Shavis, this has been a really important conversation and I really appreciate your vulnerability and your time and just sharing your body of work and the intersection of so much that so many of us uh, and how we live our lives and where we personally and professionally, we've got a lot to, to sift through from this conversation. So thank you for your time. Thank you for continuing to show up. Um, really grateful for you and your leadership. Thank you. This has been lovely. I appreciate it. You can't cultivate change while playing it safe and sitting on the fence. Now you'll feel the most alive and aligned when you stop editing your life. And you'll also experience loneliness on this path to liberation. Shavis addressed important truths about the dangerous biases we have our own size, weight, and looks. This is an intersectional leadership issue we must all rumble with and address in ourselves and in the communities we lead. It is such a nuanced and important topic. Because if you care about people, then you need to care about the bodies they inhabit, along with the biases you have towards weight and size. She also reminded us the pace of change can be hard and a lot slower than we want. And it took my breath away when she spoke about speaking and leading our truth as the ultimate self-care. That is totally a new mantra of mine. So I want to ask you, where are you editing your life and playing it safe? I want to challenge you to get honest with yourself and look at your biases around size and weight and beauty and ask yourself how these biases are impacting how you lead. What truth is brewing inside of you that the world needs to hear and you need to share? Rumble with your answers to these questions. Talk to your peers, those you lead, those who have a different lived experience than you do. And do the work to increase your capacity for vulnerability so your life, your work, your truth can truly be a catalyst for change. Leading is hard. (laughs) Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leadership in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to help the protector of cynicism stay at bay and also foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead. When time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. 
You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 